out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the musician, guitarist, drummer and singer. It is Toby Bell. Member of Bikini Kills, is, has been in a lot of other bands, but her latest musical adventure is a band called The Real Distractions. This um, combo has a new 7-inch EP out, which has got five tracks and the single Stupid. This is a uh, co-release between Perennial Records and K Records. Um, is available from all good record shops and also it is available on Bandcamp. So just go for The Real Distractions and um, you'll find out more. It's a four-piece band featuring three other members. KT on vocals and bass, Ricky on guitar vocals, Peter on keyboards and drums, it's Toby. Anyway, this is the interview with Toby. After several minutes of, uh, minutes of casual chat, we got down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. Toby, take it away. There you go, magic. So look, what's kind of always interesting to sort of get a vague idea of these things, um, this isn't that interesting. Well, I was born 1964, so I'm now in my late 50s, which is freaky. But my early musical moment in life was the, the glam world. This is in the UK, of people like Sweet and Slade and T-Rex and Gary Glitter. But luckily, David Bowie was my first single and first love with Space Oddity that had the B-side of Changes and Velvet Goldmine. I thought all B-sides were going to be that good. I was a bit disappointed after that. But yes, did you have a, a kind of a musical awakening that happened? Um, I can't really say yes, because my life has been like from day one, super surrounded by music. So mm -hmm. I can't, I don't, I don't know about a musical awakening. Um, probably like the first pop stuff I was really into was the Jackson 5. Right. There you go. Because you would have been, that would have been sort of the the mid-70s that things would have started to sort of filter into your aura? Yeah, I mean, early 70s, really. I was born in 69, but my parents were rock and rollers, you know. Were they? So, uh, yeah, so, um, like, they took me to a rock festival when I was, like, six weeks old. And, you know, uh, I was in this movie of um, the, you know, the, the um, Who album, Tommy? Yes. The album came out before the the movie came out. So my uncle made his own movie in 1969 and I was in that as a baby. So like basically there's like no time before music. But I yes. think that the first music I really liked by myself was the Jackson 5. Yes. Well, they were, they were great, weren't they? Songs about Ben, ABC. You could sing along yeah. quite easily and... And get the gist of it. But did you, so yeah. your parents were very musically minded. You're the Bohemian. Were they Bohemian? Um, they're like working class kids in a, you know, like a um, suburb of Seattle. And it's near Tacoma, Washington, where like the Sonics, um, the garage band, the Sonics are from. Yes. Um, you know, like Psycho and um, Have Love Will Travel and uh, all those songs. So it's kind of the same, the same scene as that. It's just like a really like teen, teenage dance bands that are sort of like heavy R&B, fast rock and roll. And it's kind of like a car culture, I guess. Yes. Blimey. Hot rod, hot rod racing. Did they, because yeah. they would have been in that generation that could, but it doesn't sound like they were, but were, you know, part of the kind of the, the blossom of the kind of hippie counterculture movement of... Uh, um. Yeah, yeah, definitely at first, yeah. 
um, they they had me when they were like 17. So they got very responsible very quickly. <laughs> so we didn't have like a wild, you know, childhood, like really. Uh, but there was a lot of music. Yes, absolutely. And then as as you were sort of, when did when did you sort of, because many of us just stuck to listening to music, you know, obsessively. But obviously, when did you start thinking, actually, I'm going to make that big leap and want to um, play an instrument? Um, I started playing guitar seriously after I saw the Go-Go's. So right. that was like in 1982. Um, um, yeah, I'd started playing it in um school like we had a school thing where you they let you check out a guitar for three months like basic music lessons basically and then um I was like well I don't know how to make the guitar sound you know um like the music I like so then I just I kind of switched to drums because there was a drum set in the in my house growing up because my dad's a drummer oh that's so handy he could have given you lessons He could have given you uh, some pointers. Yeah, or or just like basically, you know, just hand you the sticks and like bang on things. <laughs> yes, I know. We yeah. all get very captivated when we see Karen Carpenter with that little bit of her kind of Buddy Rich moment while singing at the same time, which is always amazing, really. But yeah, so then as the 80s trucked on, see, 83 to 87 for me was the years of the Smiths. God, I loved the Smiths back in those days. Yeah. But obviously you were still quite young, but... But then by 85, you had got your first, well, you weren't that young, actually, were you? You were 16. So did you, leave, you, did you leave school at sort of that age or did you stay on to college? Um, no, I stayed in school. Actually, like Calvin um, at one point, like asked me if I would consider quitting high school and going on tour as a drummer of Beat Happening because Heather didn't seem that interested in touring. Um, and that was around 1986. Yes. Uh, but I couldn't figure out how to make that work. So then we started doing the go team more seriously around that time. Yes. And did was it kind of amazing being asked by Kelvin to join a band at this stage? Um, yeah, I was already in a band here, but um called Doris with some teenage girls that I grew up with. But um I was pretty I was like a lot more serious about it than they were. So I think Calvin saw that and um kind of picked up on it but also he'd already encouraged me to get a radio show here as a teenager because we have a um a station at the college that um is a community station and it's like open programming you just have to pay play 80 percent um independent artists but you right. can play whatever you want so i was just like very interested in music and so he was like oh you should just go there and they'll give you a radio show and they did so I already knew him through that basically my god you were so confident as a teen I mean I was really shy actually but I was just into music so yes. yeah <laughs> and how long did your how long did go team last was that a few years and um, a couple of cassettes until like 1989 we put out uh I don't know there's like five tapes maybe and there's nine seven inches I think Yes, yes, that's that's all there, isn't it? And then as the, for, I mean, it's probably a bit different in America, but I know in the UK, that was a big moment when the Smiths broke up. 
87, you know, it was like a JFK moment. Where were you when you heard the Smiths broke up? But then when that happened, there was kind of the world of kind of, there was a lot of indie pop and a lot of those bands were like, oh, after five years, we've just had enough. It's all over. And then Ecstasy came along. So we had a lot of the dance music that started to develop in the UK, like Primal Scream, the Suit Dragons, the Happy Mondays and people like that. And then you had the sort of the Pixies and stuff on 4AD and that that first, um, yeah, the Bleach album. So, So what was it like? For you in America during that time, seeing the kind of this kind of musical change happening, um, I would say like probably in eighty six, eighty seven, the Smiths were my were one of my favorite bands. But then like, um, I was also like into like hard rock, basically. Like so, I got really into Led Zeppelin, and um, like uh, the Melvins were like the big band here. So um, you know that's like super heavy, slow, hard yes. rock. I didn't grow up listening to metal or anything. I grew up more from a, like a pop new wave kind of rock and roll background, like, you know, sixties kinks who Beatles, you know, Rolling Stones clash, then, you know, the pretenders, that kind of thing. But like, yeah, I got into really into the Smiths. They were my favorite band for a while. I probably went right around when they broke up, they were my favorite band. But so then I was like, I had these two poles of things, like a really heavy kind of like rock thing I was into, but then also like a kind of like lighter pop thing that I was into. And I'd always go back and forth. Yes. Um, but I really like I really liked the shop assistants. I was completely obsessed with them at the time. And I liked Tallulah Gosh. And um, I liked Primal Scream. I had one of those create creation compilations. Those records were really hard to get over here, you know. So I would imagine. At the radio station, like Olympia is a small town. And so I remember there's like a two hours away, there was like a import store in Portland called the ooze. And like, you could go there and I think I got a soup dragons record there, but you know, it wasn't like that easy to get those records. So I relied a lot on Calvin's um, music (laughs) collection. (laughs) We didn't have a lot of imports at the radio station either. Um, But I was also into like the Paisley underground kind of thing, like the three o'clock and Salem 66 and, um, the early bangles and uh you know that kind of stuff yes did people like green on red come into your consciousness because i remember they became quite yeah. big. we that had was... a band in the local scene here um i started going to shows here in 1983 uh, to see live music and um as a teenager we had a band here called the young pioneers and they were kind of like our green on red you know they were like very musical i always think of them as like the big star of olympia because it's kind of one of those bands that like nobody cared about at the time but like were very influential and super melodic like two guitars and um pretty northwesty sounding like um like the wipers but also very melodic like i guess we say like kind of like early rem sort of you know paisley 60s influences yes it's the birds isn't it and the flying burrito brothers and all that that kind of stuff yeah but they were such a great band they were my one of my favorites for sure Yes, God, that's amazing. So, yes, because actually the shop assistants, I think, were on 53rd and 3rd records. And oh, yeah, Gosh. and the pastels, the pastels, too. Oh, the yeah, pastels. I love them. <laughs> I remember oh, I, like, inter- I got to interview Stephen Pastel on my radio show, and it was really nerve-wracking because we had to figure out the time difference. And then, like, I was too nervous to really think of any good questions. But uh, that was fun. That was probably around 87 or something. Yes, I know. He's turned me down, actually. So there you go. you got one up <laughs> on me. I think he's had enough of being interviewed. So it's like, never mind. Uh, maybe because it's about the past. He's probably one of these people who wants to talk about the present, which is, yeah. is cool too. Yeah, no, that's absolutely fine. I mean, I guess so. You know, that's what, yeah, that's, I suppose people get a bit sort of 
cheesed off with it. But then, so the other thing that really was huge in our lives in this country was was people like, you know, Huskadoo, the Minneapolis kind of scene. Oh, yeah, the, I, was, I really like that too. And then the, Son, you know, Sonic Youth and there was the Butthole mm-hmm. Surfers and Big Black. So all that kind of music was sort of coming through as well. So we were getting very yeah, excited. Sure. And it, obviously there had been the Dead Kennedys as well. So were you, was your music kind of style changing at this time, you know, your playing style changing? Uh, I very much like was super influenced by Beat Happening and the shop assistants when I first started writing songs and also Salem 66 were a huge influence. And there's this, um, compilation that Gerard Cosley from Matador Records put out at the time he used to do a fanzine called Conflict. And he put out this, um, LP compilation called Bands That Could Be God that had like, um, it was like a conflict fanzine. Uh, compilation it came out in 1983 I think but it had Salem 66 and like all these Boston bands like Christmas and um sorry but then it also had like Deep Wound on it you know like Jay Maskus's hardcore band um so that record I was totally obsessed with and would play at the radio station all the time but yeah so like Salem 66 influenced my guitar playing and the go team and um my singing was like I was trying to go for like a shop assistant's uh Heather from Be Happening kind of like soft you know poppy kind of voice at first yes my god it's good and then and then sort of how did how did this sort of because the changing of a decade seems to always have a certain significance and for you you know this is when the you you sort of formed bikini kills well not Mm -hmm. you personally but how did that sort of come together that that sort of um formation um well I think I was I became like pretty aware of like a lot of double standards in the indie music and punk underground music scene for women um and just said pop music at large because I was such a huge Go-Go's fan and I just considered that like a lot of people's attitude towards them was very sexist and then also it just occurred to me as a teenage girl I was like how come there aren't just as many girls on stage as there are guys on stage like sure we had like we actually did have a lot of women in the scene and we had a lot of women on stage, but nothing near gender parity at all. Like not at all, you know, nothing close to like the same amount of people of like, even to this day, like there's been very few like women in the Olympia music scene that play electric guitar seriously, you know? And so it's just always kind of like, well, I guess we need to create an environment Um, where we encourage that and so that was part of my mindset of intentionally starting an all-girl band as a teenager and then you know that didn't really go anywhere and so um, after playing with Calvin you know I think I was even more motivated to do that it was just like I want to find women to play with and then so when I met Kathleen and Kathy um, that just became you know, kind of a part of what we wanted to do as a band is we saw, we all saw Babes in Toyland and we were just like, oh my God, these people are ferocious. Um, And we want to do something like that's that, that's that powerful and stylish and confident and, you know, like very like, um, but also like be very encouraging to other women. Like they were really nice. Like if you could just go see them, you know, um, and like, I think we saw them in 1989 or 1990 or something, and you could just go see them and talk to them. And they were just like, oh, you, yeah, you should start a band, you know, stuff like that. It's like, I think that's kind of what it takes is you need to see someone doing it and you need to see, have some encouragement. So that was the basic idea. Yes. Positive role models. It, it, it makes such a big difference, doesn't it? Because it's one thing I've noticed now is that there's so many people 
women are playing, you know, guitar and drums. It seems to be yeah. constantly on on my Instagram feed. Always seems. Yeah, but, but uh, you know, like there's there's still like in my in my thinking, like we still haven't had the impact at, at in the same way that um, guys have in a way, like because like it's like we have a lot of solo musicians, and then we have like a lot of women like in bands. But are there there haven't really been that many um, all female bands that work as groups that have had like chart success or mainstream success, you know, like work as groups. Like that's why I'm really excited about the Linda Lindas, actually, because, you know, they're, you know, the youngest member just turned 12. I think the oldest member is like 17, maybe. But they're, you know, they're these girls that are writing their own music and they are a group. You know, it's not like a leader with a backing band and it's guitar based music and like you know as far as like the uh, states goes like the go-go's really their chart success has not been surpassed by like a group of uh girls you know or women like it just hasn't happened like a guitar based like group writing um song their own songs like hasn't had mainstream success really yet and you know people could be like oh well you know that's a different era like groups the the like rock and roll group is like a 20th century thing it's like well it doesn't have to be you know i think that uh like what i really like about like a band like the smiths or something is like they are a group you know it's four people in the band like you could there, there could be like songwriting teams within that band or whatever but it's a group it's not just like one person with a backing band Yes, this is true. I think I heard um, one of the members of that band you just mentioned, was it Linda Linda being interviewed by Elton John on on one of his kind of radio shows? <laughs> I think they were just off. He was like, oh, can I have a quick word before you go to school? And they're amazing. Yeah, yeah. They were so yeah. poppy, actually. I think we had yeah. sort of, there was girls school in the UK, but you're right. I mean, and then you mentioned, you know, like solo artists, because during the 80s, we had, there was been Michelle Schott, there'd been Tracy Chapman, there'd been Suzanne Vega, but there's been, there was nobody, who, uh, you know, like the Go-Go's. And I suppose then the Lunar Chicks came along and L7, but, um, yeah. and the band. But I think, I, you know, I think we definitely will see more of that, especially with the Linda Lynn is coming up and all the kids that they're influencing too. Yes, I think they will just have to do a lot more work on programming festivals, really, to try and sort of make that representation much more equal. Yeah, and, for sure. Because that's kind of quite of an embarrassing thing, really. So when, so did you have a particular when you started Bikini Kills? Did was did you kind of sit down as a band and and sort of work out a sort of a some sort of manifesto at the time? Um, it was more just like we all like lived near each other and we just like hang out a lot and talk. Um. But yeah, I mean, it was an era when like everyone was writing manifestos. I don't know if you're familiar with that band, The Nation of Ulysses um, from Washington, D.C. It was Ian Sphenonius from the makeups, um, kind of like hardcore band in the late 80s to early 90s. And they were like very into using style as a political tool and into like trying to start a new youth culture Um through music and style and they were always writing manifestos like they had the 13 point plan to destroy america um and yes, you know, we, love, were, we love those things don't we they were talking about like gentrification and you know um like uh how drugs um you know like uh can because they're they come from a straight edge scene basically but they're talking about how like the commerce of drugs can like uh, pacify people, pacify the working class so that like, you know, um, people are not like organizing to, um, 
uh, advocate for themselves or, you know, have a revolutionary struggle or whatever. They were like making all these kind of like political statements. And it was like, we're kind of like influenced by that, like how to use style and political ideas and like visuals and, um, you know, like having pamphlets or fanzines at our shows or flyers with ideas on it to like encourage um, mostly girls and young women to participate in the making of culture. Because we had this idea that um, if more girls and women participated in the making of culture, like through starting bands and stuff, that um, we could actually see some real social change. Because like, like being in a band is a way you can like actually change what things mean. Yes. Like using symbols as a language or whatever. Like we saw that with punk. We saw that, you know, with um, rock and roll. And so, you know, at first, like with what, what ended up being called Riot Girl, like at first we were just like, let's just start a whole new youth culture. You know, like, how do we do that? And so we were trying to do that kind of, but then it sort of became like more of an activist-y um, movement uh, a little bit, but uh, you know, that's cool too. Well, uh, which I which I think is quite interesting because there's been a lot of archiving recently on on the music press, and it's interesting yeah. that it was all basically written by men. I know there was a couple of women, <laughs> but mostly the language and some of the attitudes, you know, when they've gone back and looked at the archives of the 70s and 80s. I mean, there was a bit in the 60s, but it is really shocking. It's terrible. You know, people are really embarrassed by it, aren't they? You know, the kind of language, the kind of attitudes for women in bands. So there was a huge fight. I mean, I think people forget what it was like back then that that it was like it was a boys club wasn't it you know the music papers was a boys club really yeah and and I think that people are just like used to the culture that that they are that is natural to them so they don't necessarily question it until it, it becomes until it becomes an issue so it's like when you go to a show like you know every time I go to a show I walk down the street I walk into the room I'm like are any women playing in any bands tonight you know and it's like if the answer is no I'm just kind of like perplexed as to why, you know, because it seems like that, that seems like just, oh, that's just how it happened to be, you know, that we just happened to like not have any women on the bill tonight. And it's like, well, it didn't even occur to you that that's, you know, kind of strange, um, you know, so like it becomes normalized. And then it's like, I don't really know necessarily what the answer is, but it, you know, just to ask the question, sometimes if you just ask that question, you, people push back against you like they're like well why would you even ask that like this is just about music it's not about gender it's like well yeah but just think about it like there just there just happens to be no women on this bill why you know yeah but I found I also found that sometimes with playlists thinking god you know especially in the old days you know it was just like no one quite you know questioned that there was just like actually all these are just men and there's no there hasn't been any women on this playlist and this is a you know with radio shows so like so in a way that's that's even worse because you think well they really shouldn't be quite so male dominated you know so that that's kind of interesting and you know yeah. obviously live shows again you know people need to have a, a sort of make that kind of um I can't remember what the term is but there's a positive positive something to sort of encourage or actually include whatever the you know whatever the yeah, cost really just- just raising the question though can like uh you know get people really riled up even now like even in 2022 it's like it's like oh well uh we didn't mean to do that I was like yeah but like think about it and then it, it but then you get into some weird things too we're just like should we have that band play the bill just because there's like one woman in the band like it's just kind of funny but I don't know what the answer is really I think it's just a, it's a good thing to keep in mind when you're booking shows or making a playlist or something like that 
But, um, you know, that was something that was kind of cool about that 80 scene that, you know, you're focused on like the C86 or whatever. It was like there were women, um, there were women on in a lot of the re- early rough trade bands. And then, you know, like the raincoats and there's the one to buy a bridge compilation. We played that on the radio here a lot. And then the Olympia sound was like pretty influenced by bands like Marine Girls and Dolly Mixture. Um, the 80s scene here was very influenced by those two bands. And, you know, those bands weren't very big in the United States, but they were big here because they got played on the radio. Yes. Um, Um, And in 91, there was this, the the International Pop Underground Convention in Olympia, which also featured a band that I've interviewed, Giant Kicking Giants. Oh, yeah, Kicking Giant. Yeah, they were from um, New York City. Yeah. So can you just explain what this event was? Because it's quite, it sounds quite extraordinary. Um, so basically, K Records was mostly a tape label in the 80s. And then um, they started putting out a little bit of vinyl and becoming more of a, a presence internationally. And they distributed a lot of indie stuff. And um, so uh, Candace and Calvin, who ran the label at the time, like decided to have a not like a music conference, but more just like a convention so that they invited all the people, you know, that they'd met through the label to come to Olympia and play a show, basically. Like it was just like a kind of like a utopian idea. And it rains here all the time. So they had it in August, which is like, you know, right this time of year, which is it's really nice. It's sunny. We have a lot of lakes. You can go swimming. You can walk everywhere. So, you know, everyone just came to town and there was a bunch of shows and there was a bunch of picnics and sort of like innocent outside fun things like it wasn't like a bar scene you know I mean some people were getting drunk or whatever but like it was very much just like kind of like an innocent sort of like let's go swimming and hang out in the park outside you know and have dance parties and all these bands it was fun yes it wasn't like Woodstock 99 then was it no (laughs) no it was and it was also just like a lot it was like it pretty much was still that era where like like the people in the audience were like the people on the stage, you know, it wasn't like, it wasn't like entertainment was just being sold to the consumers or whatever. I think you guys have a term like the punters or something like that. Like it was just like, you know, um, mostly like the people who would come see the shows back then were, were also just as likely to be on the stage as in the audience. So that was the kind of festival it was. It'd be like, Oh, there's like, the guys from shadowy men and a shadowy planet or like Billy Childish or like Steven Pastel, like watching, you know, a local Olympia band like at noon or whatever, you know, like, and just hanging out. Like there wasn't like a backstage pass kind of vibe or anything. My God, utopian days, weren't they really? So when, yeah. so, so as, as your, as the band developed, what was, you know, cause it's like, it was quite fraught, wasn't it? You know, the, the, the time of your, of your musical explosion with Bikini Kills. It wasn't, it wasn't an easy ride, was it? Um, I mean, yes and no. Like, we got pretty popular immediately. Like, um, people knew who we were, and it was pretty easy for us to get shows. We actually ended up moving to Washington, D.C. for a little while, and um, I think living on the East Coast made it easier to be in a band um, full-time because there's more places to play. Olympia's really geographically isolated by, like, mountains and mountain ranges and um, long drives to the next town and stuff like that. So if you want to play anywhere other than Seattle or Portland, you have to drive like eight or more hours, you know, more like 12 hours or whatever. Yes. Like 
it's like 17 hours to even get to San Francisco, which is like the nearest big city, basically. God, it's All always right. it's always embarrassing when when I've spoke to people in America. Go, oh, yes, we had to drive six hours to go to a show. And I was thinking, my God, there's a couple of shows I didn't go to because it was like <laughs> 60 minutes away. It's like, oh, no, that's terrible. Yeah. And so in DC, like it was a more political punk scene. Um, I think we had a lot of support there and. Um, but yeah, there was like also a backlash, like it was the days of grunge, which was another very male dominated kind of heavy world. Um, but you know, we're kind of a part of that scene too. Is it, did, did you sort of find towards that kind of like 92, 93 period, I suppose at the time, but especially also reflecting back, you know, how quickly scenes go from like, God, that was so good. And then it was like, oh, dear, because there, there seemed to be a lot of chaps in sort of check shirts kind of with the hair and the kind of the, the Jack Daniels bottle singing songs about their problems with their stepfathers in small town America. Did Was that quite hard work at times for you in, a, in another band? Um, I mean, I got like by 93, I think. All of us were pretty into Huggy Bear and what was happening in England. Like there was kind of a riot girl scene there for a bit with like Mambo Taxi and Voodoo Dolls. Is that what they're called? Voodoo Dolls? That sounds wrong. Do you know what I'm talking about? I think so. Uh, I, I remember that, that on that stage there was people like the, there'd been a band <laughs> I, called, oh, there was Silverfish that was fronted by Leslie. And then there was the Faith Healers that were, you know, were very good. And there and, was like Corner Shop was on Ouija and, you know. Those kind of bands, like, uh, and we were really into the head coaches and like Billy Childish kind of stuff, um, which I, I'm still, I still am into that. I like garage, like 60s kind of stuff. Um, I'm with but, you. Yeah. I think we were by 93, just like really focused on Huggy Bear. Yes, absolutely. And what was it like coming to the UK for the band? It was really fun. It was really fun. I always wanted to go there and, um, you know, I always liked the music from England and stuff. So uh, we got to go to record, record stores. Like I remember going to Glasgow and Edinburgh and just like finding all these seven inches. Like, oh, here's the first Buzzcock seven inch, $4, no big deal. You know, stuff like that. <laughs> and, and like, you know, fall records that I never knew existed or, um, you know, just stuff that like, because it wasn't, you know, the things weren't so like easy to to know, like you could know you might not know someone's discography, even though you're like a big fan of their band. So, you know, like you might be like a huge Buzzcocks fan, but not even have any idea what the singles look like, you know? Yes. Um, so that was exciting just even to see the records. Um, so record shopping. Yeah. We got it really into Dexie's Midnight Runners on that tour. <laughs> My God, the Young Soul Rebels is one of the great songs of all time, isn't it? Yeah, we got really into that band. I had previously disliked them because I didn't really have a context for it, but Huggy Bear really uh, uh, got us into that. And then Comic Gain was just starting around then, and Comic Gain, I think, are one of the best bands ever. And um, so we got to be a part of seeing the early Comic Gain shows. And um, we met um, the some of the people from Tallulah Gosh, too. Um, they were in Heavenly then, I think. Yes, right? Amelia Fletcher. Yeah, so we got to meet her. And um, that was great. That's what's so great about so many of those scenes is that Amelia is still sort of putting out lots of records and compilations. And yes, she's even with her chat, Rob, has started a record label as well, which has been very exciting. And then a sort of a collaboration with um, the guy from, oh God, Swansea. Oh God, I can't remember it now. But anyway, we get the gist. 
I remember too, like being like in a like a cafe or like whatever you call them, a calf. You call them a calf over there. We're like in you know like a diner kind of calf, like coffee shop place. And I remember like like David from Comic Game, like he's like talking in like Cockney rhyming slang, and I was like, "You're just making this up." Like he's like, "No, this is a real way that people talk." And he was like, he's like wrote it out on a napkin for me, and I was just like. No, I I just think you're just making this up. And then he also like told us that like um, people called like Tallulah Gosh and Heavenly. This is funny. They call them. Um, oh, wait, my phone might die. They call them Twee or whatever. And I was like, I don't even know what Twee means. Like, what does that mean? And I remember him. And I was just like, Are you just making this up? Is this a real word, Twee or whatever? Twee. Like, yeah, I heard that word until 1993. Yes. Um, well, it was it was to do with that record label, Sarah Records. And because they were quite an introspective, a lot of the artists were seemed to be introspective and quite sensitive. People in the, a lot of the music press put them down as being twee and shoegazing and stuff like that, you know. Right, but it was, it was considered an insult at the time, right? Is that right? It was kind of, yeah, it was a little bit of an insult. Cause in, what, the, in, what way, in what way was it an insult in your point of view? Because... Um, so if you say, oh, that's twee, it's a, I suppose it's a bit fey or a little bit weak or a bit, yeah, somehow it's not, nothing gutsy. Like it's feminine, right? Pardon? It's like coded feminine. It's I kind guess of it would be, or twee, yeah, it's a, it's a bit naff, I suppose, does that naff <laughs> a bit? A bit don't naff. have that term either. I don't know, I just thought it was interesting. And then like, I was just like, oh, okay, so like, Maybe it also is like a class thing. Like people think it means like middle class or something. And like that's a put down in England. Oh, or something. Yeah, that could be true as well, actually. Yeah, it's funny how we use these words as an insult. And you think, I'm not quite sure why that's, yeah, but it comes over as a bit fey or a bit like, you know, nice. But there is a documentary on Sarah Records, which probably explains a lot more of this kind of all the insults. Because I think at the time, there was Matt and Claire who started it, and I think they just got total insults from everybody. But that label has become kind of quite a cult thing now, and so everybody, they've Where? they've kind of they've they've let, they've lasted the test of time. So you can sort of watch a whole documentary on the world of Sarah Records if you want. So um, it's all good. Where was that based? Pardon? Where is the label from? The they started it. I think it was in Bristol. Um, was was the was where Sarah Records started from. But they they've got this really passionate following now, which be, means that people still love all the bands that's uh, that were on Sarah Records, and they're just nice people. You know, I think we also use the word nice in a nast, not in a rather unpleasant way. So if you go, oh, that's nice. It's like it's that kind of way that the English. Are. Yeah, we put it down really. So there you go. So um, <laughs> there you go. Tulula, gosh, we love them really. So you know, because um, because you take the vocals on quite a few on quite a few of the songs, don't you? On Bikini Kill. Um, I think I sing like six or seven songs over the course of the band or something. Uh, yeah. Yes. For so Somewhere. so for for you for I suppose everyone asks you this for only that's the one, isn't it? From the last mm-hmm. album, is that one that you've sung on? Mm-hmm. Can you, did you write that song as well? Mm-hmm. So what can you explain what that was, where that comes from and, and kind of the story behind it? Um, that's definitely like a shop insistence kind of influence song. But um it's just kind of about loss, I guess, you know, like uh being estranged from someone and then having that estrangement like mediated through 
um, culture, I guess. Yes. Yeah. Did you enjoy sort of taking the vocals on on with the band? Um, well, we like to switch instruments as like a political tactic because it, um, for political reasons, it like showed the audience like what it would be like for, say, the drummer to play a bass. And obviously the drummer doesn't know how to play bass. So it's like, okay, so now we're introducing this level of amateurism to the audience. Like watch us learn how to, watch us play a song when we don't know how to use our instruments. And for us, that was uh, trying to demystify the process of songwriting and encourage participation. You know, for someone watching that, they might not get it and they might just be like, well, why, why are they doing this? Like these songs aren't as good as the other songs, but actually they, they are kind of just as good because they have like a rawness to them that um, is interesting. I mean, I always like say like, you know, I like, I like good singers and I like great musicians but I don't think being a good singer or a great musician has any direct correlation to being able to write a great song. I think anyone can write a great song and any voice or any, any kind of any person with any ability can create a musical, can, can use their voice to express something that is valid, you know, like, so I think that's kind of what we were trying to do is like encourage people to participate in the making of their own culture by showing that you could just play and you don't know how to play and still write a song that's like worthwhile. Or even if it's not worthwhile, you could do it in public and you might fail and that and then someone in the audience might be like, I can do better than that, you know. <laughs> Actually, that was quite interesting because I think when David Bowie recorded Boys Keep Swinging, they couldn't quite get the essence of that song. So they all sort of moved one place along and played someone else's instrument to sort of just give it a bit of a looser feel because I think it was just like this is just too slick we need to make it looser so actually that was quite an interesting tactic or idea that they had and it's also quite interesting because once every five years I think about every five years there's a TV documentary where they'll they'll try and talk about sort of writing this classic song so they'll get this you know the writer of the time then they'll get a great vocalist and they'll get a great producer and a great guitarist and they spend an hour making this documentary and then they end with this kind of the song that they've put together that's going to be a classic because it's got all the the right bits and it's like the most boring song you've ever heard me <laughs> I don't think they should have bothered so it's interesting isn't it what makes that kind of a classic track you because it doesn't come yeah. it doesn't come from having your the best producer in the best studio with mm-hmm. you know the, you know the, obviously not all songs are good songs but you know it doesn't really matter it's it's still it's still a part of the conversation, I guess. Yes, absolutely. And what happens to you? How do you then sort of navigate the next period after your time with Bikini Kills? Um, well, I worked at the label Kill Rockstars for about 20 years. Um, and so that was sort of my focus as far as um, I did more like behind the scenes stuff. But I still played in local bands. I was um, in a band, I started a band called Spider in the Webs and um, we self-released a few tapes and toured Europe and um, the United States a bit and um, stuff. But, you know, like I kind of had more had a job and was in school and didn't uh, have the ability to tour full time anymore. Um, but um, then I don't know. I've just been, I've been playing, like, I've not, I've been in so many bands and I've been playing music my whole life. So it, to me, it didn't really end, but I guess 
like as far as being in a very public band, um, Bikini Hill is definitely the most, you know, full-time thing that I experienced. But yeah, like you contacted us uh, about The Real Distractions, which is a local band that I played in for a couple of years. And, um, you know, that's a perfect example. It's like K Records is like very dedicated to um, documenting the um, international pop underground and Perennial Records is, um, it was a co-release with Perennial is also more focused on uh, that and a local Olympia band. So it was a co-release and we're really grateful to um, have that come out. And it was a very fun band to be in. Yes, with your five tracks, which I've been playing for the last couple of weeks, which sounds amazing. How did, did you start right? Was, was this a band that was around before the dreaded lockdown, by the way? Yeah. So basically after 2020, like... Um, uh ricky moved to tucson and kt moved to seattle so it's just me and peter are still living here now but so we didn't get to play any shows yet since the record came out but we hope to do that at some point i don't know how likely it is everyone's in different bands like peter who's our keyboard player is a great 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 like world-class songwriter in a band called the mona reels that's has been his project for basically his whole life um and he's just made a great album. Um, God, what is it called? I'll remember in a second. Um, but yeah, the Mona Reels, you should check them out. And he's working on their next single. And then um, Ricky, he was in Rick and the Pigs, obviously. That was like his band. And then um, now he's in Tucson. He's in a band with his best friend, Andy Pugue. And they're called Class. And right. that their their demo came out on Feel It Records recently. It's power pop, more um, more power pop, I would say, with two guitars and two main songwriters, and you know vocal harmonies and killer arrangements. They're just great. And that they only they've only put out a five song tape, and it's getting played all over the world on all these different you know underground radio stations. It's got some momentum behind it, so they're going to do a follow up LP on Feel It, and then I think they've already got another one like fully written and maybe even recorded um but but yeah that band's really great and excellent guitar playing yeah and so and then kt who is our singer and bass player um she has been playing with a band called um from seattle called tv star and um i don't know to me they're kind of like a paisley underground theme but like maybe a bit like creation like oasis kind of sounding yes and um, she's she's such a good bass player. She's like the youngest member of our band, and it was um, the Real Distractions was one of her first bands. And she's about to make a new uh, solo album, so she's about to start recording that. And I think that'll be great. Um, and then obviously, I've been on tour with doing the Bikini Kill reunion shows, but I also have um, an album coming out on K and Perennial by Morgan and the Organ Donors, which is uh, probably won't be out until like March um, right. at this point. But that'll be on KM Perennial, and I play drums on that. And that's James from Spider in the Webs and his wife, Sarah, and our friend Olivia, who was in COCO, um, that were on K. Anyway, so that's coming out. And then I also have just released a whole album. Do you know who um, Do you know who Skin Teen are from the Riot Girl scene? No. In, okay, so Skin Teen were like a Huggy Bear adjacent band in the 90s, and Layla Gibbon was like in that band and she was a teenager then 
like about 16 years old, maybe. And, you know, they did a peel session and everything. They're a really great skinned teen. And um, so, yeah, Layla and I, um, since about 20, I don't know, 14, maybe. I can't remember when we started. We started playing in a band together long distance called GSP or Girl Sperm. And that is with Marissa Magic, who's like a noise guitarist. So we have an album that came out on Thrilling Living in um, 2016. And then we had one that just came out now in 2022. But like all of those records, like The Real Distractions, Morgan and the Organ Donors, the Girl Sperm um, LP, they all were recorded before lockdown. And they're all just now coming out. So it's kind of like crazy. It's like we went into this like, you know, weird tunnel of like nothing. And then now we're back. Is it the case? Because there's one thing that I've, I've sort of, especially what you just said in the last five minutes, mm-hmm. was that there's people go from one band, they keep creating bands very quickly in America, which doesn't seem to be the case in the UK so much. I think people seem to sort of, is it is it a cultural thing or a geographic thing? Because it doesn't seem mm-hmm. to have that sort of fluidity of like, oh, yes, we just got together, we created this, did this album, and that was that. You know, people, there's normally this five-year narrative that I find we're doing this show, which, you know, people get together, they have that 12-month honeymoon period, hurrah, which is always fun. They get a single, John Peel plays it, hurrah. Then they get a John Peel session, first album, things are going well. Second album, a bit tricky. Third, oh, yeah. it's all over. Um, but, in in but you know, the way you describe that is that people are just kind of going, right, that's it, I'm here. I've got a few weeks. I could just do an album with you, right, that's it. Is it is it culturally a lot more fluid in, in sort of America? Uh-huh. I mean, I don't know. I think that it's definitely like common in Olympia and I'm not sure why that is, but you know, um, I think it's probably less common in most people's lives. Like, I mean, like I'm a drummer who's also a songwriter. So I'm kind of like always looking for a band to collaborate with and everyone usually needs a drummer. Like drummers are, you know, kind of hard to find, I think good drummers i mean there's like every a lot of people can just like kind of play drums or whatever but um i would i would say with confidence that i'm probably an asset to <laughs> to like a you know a minimalist like loud kind of uh rock and roll band at this point um so i'm always you know like i need to rehearse so uh i i'm always looking for people to play with and then you know if i can collaborate on the songwriting then i'm pretty satisfied Yes. So is it the case that people get to the right, let's 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 not mess around here, let's write some songs, get in the studio, release it, because suddenly someone's going to disappear before we know it. You know, is there an urgency <laughs> in, is there an urgency in America? Because it doesn't seem um, to have I don't know. I mean, like it's pretty easy in Olympia because there's you know, like I for the you know, I had a basement for the whole time all these bands were going on, I had a basement where my drums were and like people would just come over and then there was a recording studio right next door to my house. And my friend would just record us basically for free or for like very little money. And so it's just, I think it's kind of access. Like, you know, if you have access to the space to do it and the time to do it, then you can do it. Um, I think a lot of most musicians like collaborating. Yes. And you seem to have navigated all the ups and downs and rock and roll relatively well. <laughs> I mean, did you have you have you sort of did you have a good sort of self-sufficiency or did you have a good pre- self-preservation? Were you able to sort of deal with all the ups and downs that comes with such a sort of interesting career? Um, well, you know, I, most of the stuff, as I said, is just kind of like 
not super public, you know, it's more of an underground existence. Like I was working at a library for, you know, a lot of the past 10 years, but I had to quit that job in order to do the PD kill tours. Um, so I haven't gone back to that. Um, so I have a lot more free time or whatever, but, um, yeah, you know, like a lot of those bands don't really exist in the public eye of scrutiny or like touring or, you know, any of that. It's more just like we play Olympia or, you know, we'll play San Francisco or we'll maybe play some shows when the record camps out or whatever. Yes. But yeah, Girl Sperm is really an interesting band because I play drums and I sing in it and I'm a songwriter. Like it's an equal collab it's two guitars and a drummer and all three of us sing and write the songs and so that was that was a really fun band to be in yeah so with the real distractions i, I actually it's slightly mm-hmm. blipped there is that is okay. that a project that has now sort of like you've done it with the five track um ep that's come out or is there still more material that is going to happen we recorded all of our songs um you know if i think if we were if if we ever managed to all be in the same place at the same time, there'd probably be pretty easy for us to write more. But I think it started really as a collaboration between Ricky and KT. And um, they're both really strong songwriters and really strong players. And I think whatever they do will be great. And then I, I would also say Peter's, you know, a, he's a genius. He's like a Brian Wilson level pop genius. You should really check out the Mona Reels. I think you'd probably like it. It's very serious <laughs> pop music, you know, very orchestrated and um, very, very serious. Uh, like, you know, he take, he works on the details and it's like his lifelong kind of thing. And he's our keyboard player. So we had that bring, you know, his expertise as not only like a great songwriter, but also a rhythm player because he's actually a really great drummer too. Yeah, and, fun. you know, I've never collaborated with him in a band, but we're really good friends. So that was really fun. Yeah, absolutely. And how did you navigate and cope with the, the lockdown period? Was it a time where you were able to get on with projects or did it feel quite... Uh, no, I completely lost it. <laughs> I was just in my apartment for like, you know, waiting to go on tour because Bikini Kill was supposed to do the reunion tour starting on March 13th and like March 11th, the governor like locked down the state. So it was canceled like basically the day before. And then it didn't even start until 2022. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just kind of played guitar a lot, you know, and didn't really have much going on. I was playing drums to records though. That was pretty fun. Yes. Like on my headphones. I think I, I should say, like I learned a lot about, how to play an instrument, but I really didn't write very many songs or anything. Um, and I didn't do any of these things that other people did where they're like collaborating, you know, long distance with digital files or whatever. I didn't do any of that. <laughs> yes. Well, the other thing that people did, which is you probably noticed as well, is write a book. Did you did you go in your attic or, or basement and start pulling through your archives thinking, God, I must one day write a book about all my life? Yeah, I've got a bunch of, I have a bunch of starts on that project, but it hasn't come into focus yet. But hopefully I'll have some time to work on it this fall. Yes, absolutely. So going forward, which we always love, what what was your next projects that that you've got in the next, you know, like 12 months coming up? Um, Well, Bikini Kill are about to finally finish our or play our Northwest shows. So we're going to do that in a couple of weeks. And then those are the ones that got rescheduled from March, 2020. And then we, we all got COVID this summer. We all got it, all four of us on tour. So we still have to make up a bunch of the tour dates from 20, 
20. So we're trying to reschedule that possibly for the spring and next summer. So that's like still going to take up a whole bunch of time. Yes. Because uh, people have already bought tickets to those shows, you know, so hopefully we'll be able to redo the ones in England, like we were supposed to play the roundhouse and I had COVID and that just got canceled instead of postponed. Um, so hopefully we can redo it. I'm not sure. Has everyone recovered kind of uh, fully from their COVID? Yeah, month? I mean, I'm still really tired, like, but, you know, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully we will uh, be making full recoveries. Yes. And if you could have said something to like your 16 year old self starting out in this interest in life and path, is there anything that you would have with- wanted to have whispered in their ear as they were about to sort of launch themselves into adulthood? I think like the only thing I really regret are the times that I didn't prioritize playing music. I would say practice your instrument more. Yes. <laughs> practice guitar every day, not every other day or whatever. Yeah. And did you sort of have you, have you gro- does help. <laughs> and did you sort of grow to love the guitar as much as your drums? Yeah. I mean, I've always loved the guitar. I got a Fender Mustang um in I don't know. No, really young like 1983 or something and I still write songs on that I just got a Telecaster so I'm really excited about that I um, hope to do some recording I've never done a solo album so I don't know if I will or not but um, hopefully I could do some demos at least and then um, do you know the band Anke um, and Perennial called Ribbon Stage no uh, they're a new group. I think you would like it. Um, they're very <laughs> influenced by the shop assistants if you like them. Um, or in I think they are. Anyways, Jolie from Ribbon Stage, she's uh she was that band is based in New York City, but she moved to Olympia during lockdown. And her uh we've talked about playing together this fall after I get done with the bikini kill stuff. We're hoping to involve Peter from the Mona Reels and the Real Distractions in that project. And also um, maybe someone from the band Table Sugar, who are a local Olympia band. So that's like, I'm hoping something will will happen with that. Um, but we haven't done. What's your, what's your sort of way of working when you sort of want to sort of get a song together? What comes first, the lyrics or the sort of the, the, sort of the music? Oh, if I'm singing, uh, definitely the, the uh, like I'll put in... Uh, I'll put in like phrase, like melodic phrases before I have words usually, you know, like I'll just have filler lyrics um, that fill up the spaces. Um, yeah. I write the music first, I guess. Oh, yes. I, I think, think my phone about to die. Oh no, don't say that. <laughs> and just, I'm just, yeah, ooh, plug it in. I was just going to just say, um, Yes. So I think Black Sabbath does something quite similar, actually. I think they they started getting the rift and then Ozzy would just kind of hum and mumble along to try and get some some groove going. So um, I think that was a, a method that he used. Oh, I think you just, are you plugged in? Oh, yeah. I mean, do you play music? No, I don't. I have to confess, it's it's one of those things. One of the great regrets, isn't it, like, in life? You know, I just was a fan. So, yes, it's one of those terrible moments. Oh, well. There's, I mean, obviously you're participating. You're making the podcast. Did you ever do a fanzine? Yes, I did. So that was always good. And yes, you were you you also developed your writing style as well, which I I do remember you had the introduction in a book, didn't you? Which I oh look, this is it. 
Yeah, I did that. Um, so that fanzine is by, or that book is written by Sam McCaters, one of my fan, my old fanzine friends. Um, he used to do a fanzine called Error, and before that, he did one called Dear something. What am I? Is it called Dear Jesus? I feel like that's what it was called. He did a bunch of different fanzines. Um, and I was going to, yeah. because we were, you were talking a bit early about sort of gender and, and and the music industry. Did you get to see Woodstock '99? I just wondered if what your. Oh, you know, I have not watched it. It's on Netflix, though. <laughs> yes, I just wondered because it was, you know, on one level it feels like a long time ago, and another it isn't, and you think, God, that was just the most. I haven't watched it. I've just read the reviews and thought, God, I have to really build myself up to watch such a hideous program, really. So, um, well, I mean, that you know, it was it seemed it seems really crazy that that was just in '99 because that was like right after Riot Girl, right? You know, right after um, all of the stuff we were trying to do, and then all of a sudden, I feel like women kind of like a lot of, especially like queer feminist kind of uh, punk women, like started doing more like electronic music around that time and then a lot it seemed like guys kind of just took over guitar music again and you know the donnas were around during that time period and they were just teenage girls and you know they had a lot of horrible sexism to deal with and it's like i can only imagine like what it would be like to be a teenage girl in a in an all-girl rock and roll band during that woodstock 99 era it sounds awful it's like uh, almost worse than before riot girl Yes, I think I think it kind of pushed the boundary of awfulness yeah. out. I don't think that uh, I think he's passed away, but the is it Michael Lang, one of the organizers who who did the original Woodstock? I, I don't think he should have ever been allowed to organize everything, anything after Woodstock '69, actually, because that sounded like a disaster, really. And also, just just lastly, if there was um, your go-to books or book that you sometimes you know reference or enjoy reading again is there any particular novel or non-fiction mm. book that you go to well like since 2014 or whatever I've been obsessed with the my struggle books by the Carla Knausgaard the Norwegian author um <laughs> you know about those no. it's like uh he wrote like six books that are um it's all one book, but it came out in six volumes. My struggle. I don't know. I don't know why I'm so obsessed with him, but uh, I guess he lives in Blackheath, like uh, London. Uh, that's like right. near Greenwich, right? Yeah. I thought he was living in Sweden or Norway. So I was like, we just went to Scandinavia and I was like, oh, maybe we'll meet him. But then someone was like, oh, no, he lives in Blackheath. So oh, I don't know. Near Greenwich, really. And is and do you have yeah. a and do you have a go to film that you ever sort of pop back and watch again for your sort of a, a sort of emotional or creative inspiration? Um, so many. Like I guess, uh, um, A Taste of Honey is really one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, my uncle just died, but he was the film critic for the Seattle Times for like thirty years, and um. I did not know that A Taste of Honey was one of his all-time favorite movies, too, until fairly recently. And so when my mom was going through his stuff, um, she grabbed like a movie poster for me that I think I think he had set aside for it for me. So she's getting it framed. But it's like from the 60s. Isn't that cool? <laughs> that is so cool. Well, well, interestingly, just on on the slight this point, I did an interview with the um, the daughter of of the woman who wrote it. Is it Sheila Delaney? Delaney. Yeah. And it was quite, and I think the daughter's called Charlotte. That was a few years ago. And it was interesting because um, 
Because I have a because I because my theory on it wasn't kind of what her take was at all actually. So I wouldn't say she was annoyed with me, but she was a little bit edgy at times. Because I thought I was really depressed that I care just just to round up. I was depressed that she went back with the mother rather than not go off with Jeffrey to create this new life. And yeah. the, and and the, and um, Charlotte, the the daughter of of um, the writer, she said, "No, she did the right thing. You should always go back with your mother." And I was like, "I think I kind of need to agree to disagree on that because I think she was just going to because what I found so depressing was that she was going to repeat the mother's kind of life, and it was like, yeah. no, she needed to stop or stop that. You know, and she was just about to go, and then Jeffrey somehow gets missed, and she goes back with the mother with the terrible relationships. So that was my um, that was quite an yeah. interesting conversation. I had to slightly. Well, I mean, I would say that that those kind of movies don't really have happy endings, right? So That's you wanted point. a happy. <laughs> Thing and like maybe maybe the daughter wanted a happy ending too maybe she thought it was a happy it's definitely not a happy ending it's so <laughs> depressing <laughs> it's really sad but it's really beautiful it is so um, beautiful. i love that movie i love how it's written i love how it's filmed and um yeah but then i also like romy and michelle's high school reunion if you like need to cheer yourself up or something Yes. But then we all in the 80s, there was all those kitchen sink dramas of Saturday night, Sunday morning and the taste of honey. And then there was a kind of loving. There was a whole batch of these. In the 60s. Yeah. Yeah. And we all got depressed in the 80s. And then we watched Betty Blue just to cheer ourselves up and got more. (laughs) (laughs) It was was what you did in the 80s. Look, this has been amazing. Well, look, thank you for your time. And um, yes. And if you want, I can send you the link to this podcast. And and okay. yes, I love the the, the latest um, musical creation, the the real distraction. So that's fantastic. Well, oh yeah, and so don't forget, um, Peter's band is called the Mona Reels, and the album that I was trying to remember is called Without Love, and it's so good, it's so beautiful. You should really listen to it. Yes. Um, and Ricky's band is called Class, and you can get that on Bandcamp, and it's on Feel It Records, and then. KT's band is called TV Star and she's making a solo album. So hopefully people will check out all those if they like the real distractions. And we all love each other. We're really good friends. And we hope that someday we will be able to play music again. God, fingers crossed. Anyway, look, <laughs> thank you ever so much. This has been amazing. Thanks a lot. Yeah. And take care and have a lovely, oh yeah, have a lovely afternoon. Okay, thanks, thanks for, for your time. Me. Take Bye. care. Bye bye. And that, dear listener, is the uh, end of the interview, just in case you were confused. I know, I love to leave that little bit in at the end. The English, we love to fumble over things. Anyway, look, that was Toby Vale from Bikini Kills and also her latest musical combo, The Real Distractions. Do you check it out? Featuring such songs as Stupid, Smoking with Peter, Beach Man, etc. And it's on Bandcamp, so do check that out. This is the C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do C86 Show. Keep it positive. Keep it groovy. That's what we say. And also, all these interviews have been archived. Aren't you lucky? So you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Indeed, you can. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.